Hello and welcome to the 50th podcast for U.S. History Repeated. I am Jimmy LaSalle. Interestingly enough, and we did not plan this, but our 50th episode is going to cover prohibition. So at the end of this, we will raise a glass and give a family toast that originated with our great uncle Rocco Nap LaSalle, or at least we believe so. We also have a guest podcaster from the Prohibition Museum in Savannah, Georgia. I visited back in November. Highly recommend. I'm looking forward to seeing what Travis says later on. Quick shout out to our friends at sweatcedo.com. That is sweat, S-W-E-A-T, S-E-D-O.com. Use the promo code HISTORY10, lowercase history in the number 10, to get 10% off your sweatcedo so that you too can move at the speed of leisure. If you are looking for some fun books to read, check out my fun fiction books, Immortals Revelations, about two vampires. They don't like that term, but they want to reveal themselves to the world, and they start filming a documentary, and things start going very wrong. And The Naughty List, which is a fun Christmas-themed romantic comedy about two people who have been independently working with Santa Claus to get people off the naughty list, and then Santa sets them on a path to meet, and all kinds of fun and hijinks ensue. You can grab them on Amazon. Next, tell your favorite history teacher or teacher to connect with us for our next history happy hour. We have some drinks, we talk some history, we have some fun puzzles, and we go over lesson plans. Totally worth it. Everybody's had fun. And now our resident history expert, Gene Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So a big day today. It's our 50th episode. 50 podcasts in. 50 in. And you know, and we never had a fight. Happen. We never had a fight. Although and you have never edited had me a, a little bit. No, nope, You edited nope. me. <laughs> just, just had to, uh, you know, reel you in a little bit, but no, no fights. Today. Hashtag. Uh, you know, it's a good thing that the gold rush wasn't 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag. It's a good thing. I have a filter. <laughs> so today it's a big topic today. Today we're going to talk about the 18th amendment and prohibition, and we're going to be joined by um, someone from the Prohibition Museum, which you just visited. So it's exciting stuff I, today. I was. My wife and I went to the Prohibition Museum back in October. Yes. Well, what do you say? Let's get into it. Go ahead. How about it? All right. So before we can get into the 18th Amendment, we have to talk about the temperance movement. The temperance movement was a social and religious campaign against the consumption of alcohol that began in the early 1800s. It's important to understand that drinking alcohol was safer than drinking water in the early years of the United States, as many water sources were contaminated. There was no understanding of water purification and bacteria. People just knew that when they drank the water, it made them sick. They thought it was unhealthy. As a result, more people drank alcohol instead. By the 1830s, statistics show that on average, Americans were drinking around seven gallons of alcohol a year. That is a lot of booze. What does that work out to a day? I don't even know. We'd have to do the math on that. All right, I'm going to do the math on that. You do the math. Beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. You figure that out. <laughs> Numbers aren't my thing. Wait, so each individual was seven gallons? Yes, on or, average, or, seven on gallons On average, of seven here. gallons of alcohol. You'd have to break that into ounces and divide by 365. 
Yes. Now, I mean, well, you continue. I'm going to, I'm going to do that on my phone. Okay. Now, now you're just boring our listeners. Oh, so that works out to be 1.23 ounces a day. So the math is done and you may continue. A variety of groups and organizations worked to ban alcohol in the United States. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, otherwise known as the WCTU, was created in 1873 in Ohio, and it still exists today. You can go to their website, wctu.org, and learn more about them if you wish to do so. Its second most famous president, a woman by the name of Frances Willard, advocated a do-anything policy. She remained president until her death. The WCTU supported a number of movements like suffrage, the eight-hour workday, and of course, temperance. Its members and chapters could support the movements of their choice. Many advocated for temperance. They would often have things like prayins at local saloons. To understand why most why mostly, you know, women dominated this movement, we have to discuss the plight of women at this time. Women are seen as children under the eyes of the law. Women didn't have the right to vote. They lacked any sort of political influence that they needed to kind of gain leverage. They had to start on a grassroots level, creating local chapters and slowly and steadily gaining support. The Prohibition Party was established in 1869, and they worked to have a constitutional amendment passed that would ban the creation, consumption, and sale of alcohol. Years earlier, in 1840, there was something called the Washington Movement. It was created by six men who were battling alcoholism. The theory was that if they could get together regularly, discuss their problems, and encourage each other not to drink, that they could stop drinking. And this was the precursor to Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA. The Anti-Saloon League was established in 1893. They worked to promote the temperance movement through various forms of propaganda, like stories, poems, songs, flyers describing the goals of the movement. One of my favorite leaders of the temperance movement was a woman named Carrie Nation. She was a member of the WCTU in Kansas, but felt as though their approach wasn't heavy handed enough. Carrie Nation was known for going into local saloons with a hatchet and smashing the bottles and the bar. Gangsta. Arthur's 10 Nights in a Bar Room was written in 1854, and it was the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Temperance Movement. What Uncle Tom's Cabin did for abolition, Arthur's 10 Nights in a Bar Room did for temperance. In the book, the tavern is depicted as the ruination of society, drinking shops, corrupt men's bodies and souls. Women believed that their male children were not safe. Women were not allowed in bars. The book was turned into a play and was used to promote temperance. It would not be until the progressive era and World War I that temperance advocates and supporters would reach their goal with the passage of the 18th Amendment in 1919. The victory would be short-lived as it would eventually be overturned by the 21st Amendment. With U.S. involvement in World War I, certain food items were limited to ensure that 
soldiers fighting abroad would have enough. One of those items was grain. Grain, in addition to making breads and pasta, was also used to make alcohol. So from 1917 to 1919, there are various types of slogans and propaganda posters saying things like food will win the war, save a loaf a week. Herbert Hoover, who would eventually become president, but at this time was head of the U.S. Food and Drug Association, got Americans to voluntarily give up certain foods without having to have formal rationing that would be required during World War II. By the time the United States became involved in World War I, a number of states had already passed prohibition laws, and the movement for a nationwide ban gained further support. Alcohol consumption was linked to things like domestic abuse, increased poverty rates, a variety of illnesses, whereas prohibition was linked to patriotism and good old-fashioned family values. The progressive era and World War I proved really to be the perfect backdrop to prohibition legislation. Not only did we need to preserve grain to feed our own soldiers, but we needed to help our allies defeat the Germans. The 18th Amendment was the only amendment to the Constitution that had a time delay. The amendment was passed by Congress on January 16, 1919, but would not go into effect until January 17, 1920. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into, or the exportation thereof from the United States, and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. So that's a direct quote from the 18th Amendment. Now understand that there were some limitations to the amendment. Alcohol could still be used for medical and religious purposes. One would imagine more people went to church. Support for the Volstead Act or the National Prohibition Act was divided, but the Volstead Act charged the U.S. Treasury Department with enforcement of the new restrictions and defined which intoxicating liquors were forbidden and which were excluded for prohibition. You know, so for example, alcoholic beverages used for medical and religious purposes, they were still allowed. President Woodrow Wilson actually vetoed this bill, but both the House and the Senate overrode it the very next day. The Volstead Act set the starting date for nationwide prohibition for January 17th, 1920, which was the earliest day allowed by the 18th Amendment. You know, Just to point out some similarities from 100 years ago, not only did we go from the Spanish flu to COVID, but we went from prohibition on alcohol to now we're probably most likely going to be decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana. Yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly where it's headed. And and the quote that I want to use to kind of tie all this in together is actually a quote taken out of context a bit because it was by somebody promoting the legalization of cannabis, talking how, you know, prohibition doesn't exactly work. But what we say about prohibition during the 1920s is that it turned the average person into a criminal. You weren't doing anything bad. You were drinking alcohol. If you look at what is kind of same thing applies to people that casually smoke marijuana. Well, that's what people are saying, you know, and and 
if you look at certain states, even in New York, they've decriminalized it significantly mm-hmm. over the years. So I think you're right. I think we're definitely on that path. But getting back to the 18th Amendment, I would do want to talk about what the Volstead Act did. The Volstead Act defined intoxicating liquors as anything with over 0.05% alcohol. Now, I mentioned earlier that President Woodrow Wilson vetoed the bill, and he vetoed the bill not because he disagreed with prohibition, but he specifically disliked the part of the law that enforced wartime measures. He felt it was a limit to civil liberties. So that's why he vetoed it. But with checks and balances, the Senate can override it, which they did. He felt it was a limit to civil liberties. So his veto was overturned in just two hours and the Volstead Act was passed. Imagine Congress working that quickly today. I would sincerely doubt they could do it just two hours, they could get their act together. With the passage of prohibition laws, the country was divided into dries and wets. States had to enforce the law and some states chose not to enforce it. When discussing prohibition, it is often said that it turned law-abiding citizens into criminals. Prohibition gave rise to organized crime, bootlegging, rum runners, and speakeasies. Today, we are joined by Travis Spangenberg from the Prohibition Museum. Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey there, my name is Travis Spangenberg. I am the creative and production manager of the American Prohibition Museum in Savannah, Georgia. Travis, why did prohibition laws gain support throughout the United States in the early 1900s? The temperance movement had been chugging along in some form since the 1820s or so. Americans were drinking more than they ever had and more than they ever have since, about three times the amount we drink today. It was a serious public health issue both for the drinkers themselves and the families depending upon them to provide for them. Much of the early activity of the movement involved encouraging drinkers to voluntarily give up alcohol. After a few decades, it became apparent that either the problem drinkers weren't willing or didn't have the fortitude to resist the massive amount of alcohol available to them. That's when the movement turned to legislative prohibition solutions to remove access to alcohol from their communities. These laws became increasingly popular as prohibitionists gained influence in just about any social sphere. Dry sentiment filled the churches, the legislatures, and the schoolhouses. By the time the turn of the century came, many Americans had been raised and educated on the idea that alcohol wasn't only sinful, but immediately poisonous to them and their families. So these laws became increasingly easy to enact. Can you discuss some of the difficulties enforcing prohibition laws? The insurmountable task of enforcing prohibition probably doomed it from the start. If there was never going to be any political will across the entire country to fund and staff enforcement efforts, you could never expect the nation to dry out. Let's talk staffing first. The Bureau of Prohibition only had about 3,000 agents nationwide at any one time, half of which were desk agents. There's simply too much country to cover with those numbers. The pay is better than your average job, but you are never going to be rich doing this incredibly risky and difficult police work. That means that agents were all susceptible to corruption by payoffs and bribes by the gangsters raking in the profits. That ability to outspend the government extends past simple bribes, though. If a police department can arm themselves with one Tommy gun, Al Capone can buy ten more. If Elliot Ness wants to roll into Chicago with a tank to blow Capone to smithereens, Capone can buy a whole army. There's no way to outspend the gangsters, and that makes it really easy for any individual agent or department to think, well, if you can't beat them, join them. 
The most existential threat to enforcement is just how unsupported the law was and how unwilling Americans were to inform against bootleggers or testify against them, even outside the influence of physical intimidation. The Dries were depending on every American believing so strongly in the Constitution and the rule of law that even if they didn't like the 18th Amendment, they would abide by it. That's just not the way it played out. So any honest enforcers were staring down a situation where it was difficult enough to catch bootleggers uninhibited, but there was a whole mess of other obstacles waiting for them. Corrupt officers to intercept them, juries unwilling to convict, judges hesitant to impose harsh sentences, and an increasingly organized national syndicate, always one step ahead of the government. In what ways did prohibition encourage organized crime? First, I think prohibition wounded public trust in the law in general. That means it doesn't only inspire prohibition crime, but all kinds of crime as America strays farther from their sense of justice. Bank robberies, violent crimes, and theft all increase under prohibition. But prohibition crime is really the big uptick in those nearly 14 years. Organized crime had existed long before prohibition, but they mostly profited from things like extortion, robbery, prostitution, and so on. An illicit product like alcohol was the perfect black market item. It's easy to get, make, sell, move around, and everybody wants it. I always liken it to this. Think about any other modern illicit product. Let's say heroin. If I walk outside the museum I work in into a major tourist area and family gathering space and start offering passers-by a little bit of heroin, two things will likely happen. They will at least say no, but they're also likely to alert the authorities. Americans, by and large, take the danger of such substances at least a little seriously. Alcohol just isn't that way. Except the most stringent dries, alcohol was a way of life for so many Americans up until that point, a part of our national story and an important cultural touchstone for the nation's immigrants. If you walk out into Times Square in 1928 and start offering flasks or speakeasy directions to adults, do you think the response would be the same as with the heroin? No. It allows organized crime to have a virtual playground of customers and marketplaces to perfect their illegal activity. By the time Prohibition ends, they're so practiced at it and organized that they simply apply the lessons they learned before 1933 to every other drug, racket, and enterprise available to them. Interestingly enough, um, you know, as some of you may have heard before in other podcasts, Jim and I are siblings. Our family has some links to bootlegging and Prohibition. Mm -hmm. Our Great uncle, our grandfather's brother, owned two speakeasies in downtown Brooklyn during Prohibition. Just to kind of give you a little bit of a, of a backstory, our great grandfather, when he emigrated to the United States from Italy, he sold fruits and vegetables in Manhattan. He would make these very ornate sample baskets and he would sell them to different business owners and people throughout New York City. Typically, people did the same work of their father. And he brought his oldest son with him. They worked with him for a time, but he quickly realized that there were easier ways to make money and not only easier, but he would make more money as a bookie. He would take people's bets on different sporting events. And when prohibition started, he opened two speakeasies. One day, a young man came into our great uncle's shop looking to sell him soda for his speakeasies. And that young soda distributor was a man by the name of Al Capone. And it sparked what would be really a lifelong friendship between the two. He worked with our great uncle for years and they remained friends. Al Capone would often invite him out to you know, Chicago or to sit 
ringside at a boxing match with him. But our great uncle would very politely decline because he didn't want the notoriety of sitting to Al Capone's left or to his right. You start having people saying, wait a minute, you know, who's that guy? Our right. great you got you to stay off the radar. Yeah. Our great uncle was a very interesting character. You know, by the time we knew him, or especially me, because I'm 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 much younger than Jim. By the time I knew him, it's 10 years. <laughs> You're listen, not that much. It's younger. a decade. It's a decade. <laughs> and I'll take it. By the time we knew him, he had mellowed out and he was, you know, just a very sweet and loving man. I remember, you know, sitting on his knee and him always being so happy to see us and spend time with us. He was always dressed in a suit, even older. I, I don't think I ever saw him without a collared shirt and a tie. Funny story. He he never got his driver's license, but he had a car. And he had the business card of the mayor in his wallet, which he used as his driver's license. And on the reverse, it said, you know, please afford Rocco LaSalle, Robert LaSalle, any courtesy you can. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he was friends with, you know, very famous people. He's very good friends with like uh, Jimmy Durante um, and his nickname. Nobody called him. Rocco was his original last name, but nobody called him by his was his original first name, I should say, but nobody called him that. People called him Nap, even us. We called him Uncle Nap. Uncle and Nap. Was, and he was old by the time I knew him. I thought it was because he slept a lot, but it was, <laughs> I did. I always did. That's why I thought they called him Uncle Nap because he was always kind of dozing off. But he, no, was, he was, he was, he was like in his 90s when you knew him. Well, 80s, you know, but eventually in his 90s. But he was named after a boxer at the time who could knock people out with one punch. And, and it was said that our, great uncle could do the same thing. So he was called nap. And I've watched a number of different things on prohibition documentaries. And one time I heard them reference somebody by the name of nap. So I was always like, I wonder if that was him. In addition, he also had a number of members of the police department on his payroll. His wife, our great aunt would wear an apron that had two pockets in one pocket, there would be silver pieces. And in the other, she would have gold pieces. And depending upon who you were, that would dictate which pocket she would go into to pay your bribe. As I mentioned before, in a number of podcasts, incredible amounts of corruption during the progressive era. And our family was included in that. But oh boy, he was, I, I mean, I, I know it sounds so naive of me to say, but he was such a nice, good man. I'm sure he did things that weren't so nice, but I'm sure they were. As, as all as far as we knew, he was a very nice man. So getting back to prohibition, I do want to talk a little bit, Travis, about why prohibition ended. There's no singular event that killed prohibition. Sure, there are things that didn't help its case. The St. Valentine's Day massacre, the stock market crash, things like that. But really, the reason prohibition ends is the same reason it begins. The public supported it. Prohibition was built on a foundation of grassroots activism. Despite its reputation as something foisted upon the nation, it was a result of decades of activism and political organizing. When that public support crumbled, it really didn't have a leg to stand on. It had failed to deliver on its most important promises, and its most detrimental effects were in direct conflict with many of those promises. Fact is, it wasn't working. Americans were still drinking in mass, and every American knew it. It was turning murderers into de facto kings of our cities when it had explicitly promised an end to crime as we knew it. 
Finally, its demise was happening against the backdrop of the Great Depression. How do you argue that all these liquor jobs and profits go into the pockets of the gangsters when you have so many capable Americans out of work? The real painful death blow for those who had worked so hard to enact prohibition was who was dealing that blow. Women. The largest repeal-minded organization was the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, run by a former Prohibition supporter. Her name was Pauline Sabin. She was amazing. I always say, women brought Prohibition into this world, and by God, they took it out. I'd love for you to discuss the link that the city of Savannah has to Prohibition. And I'd also love just to hear some of your perspectives on what your favorite pieces are that you have within the museum. We call Savannah the spigot of the South. It was one of the major bootlegging hubs on the American coast throughout Prohibition. Georgia had had statewide Prohibition for 12 years before National Prohibition began, so you could say our local bootleggers and rum runners were very well practiced. By 1923, we had a massively successful local ring called the Savannah Big Four. They'd use fleets of ships to import legally purchased quality liquor from the Caribbean and Europe. The ships would be anchored offshore outside of the three-mile limit of federal jurisdiction. They'd then use speedboats to ferry the bootleg liquor into our marshes, which they knew like the back of their hand, but were unnavigable for the Coast Guard. Attempted raids were always thwarted by the suspects being prepared in advance for the Fed's arrival. Almost like somebody in law enforcement told them in advance. Now, in August of 1923, the feds launched a raid out of nowhere, totally unknown to local police. Agents had filtered into the city one by one over the course of several weeks, conducting all activities out of a rented hotel floor in our DeSoto Hotel. The Big Four never saw them coming and all ended up in jail. Over 84 indictments in a single day. The New York Times reported it as the largest successful raid to date during Prohibition. We became nationally famous in the city for our liquor smuggling prowess. But we do have another connection to liquor prohibition. When the colony of Georgia was first founded all the way back in 1733, liquor consumption got out of hand, leading to the trustees of the colony to ban strong waters from the colony. That included rum, brandies, things like that. It's the first known act of liquor prohibition on the American continent. And if you've ever been to Savannah, you know we've pretty much been making up for it ever since. Now, as far as my favorite parts of the museum, we have a whole case of Carrie Nation souvenirs and artifacts. She is my absolute favorite figure from the entire Prohibition story, and I cannot get enough of her. So getting to see in person the types of merchandise she sold to fund her temperance crusades, it's a really great gateway into learning about her. I, I, I really love that case. Now, of course, on the more wet side of things, I love our speakeasy, Congress Street Up. Not only can you drink period-accurate cocktails during your museum tour on any day but Sunday, but it also serves as a center for cocktail education. We do cocktail classes, whiskey tasting classes, and tequila tasting classes. I have learned so much about cocktail history, bartending skills, and distillation since coming on board here. It's really easy to plop a bar in a museum, but it's not quite so easy to create something that so uniquely combines booze and education in this way. Ah, another fan of Carrie Nation. I love it. She's one of my favorites too. Jim, you recently went to Savannah, met Travis in person. I did. Visited the Prohibition Museum. What were some of your favorite pieces in the museum? You know, you go into the museum and they have the little signs. You take a picture. That's great. The organized crime piece of what was involved. 
And then at the end of the, the Prohibition Museum, there are two things. You have you have this whole thing on the Charleston and what happened in the 20s. And there's this little this little uh, map on the floor of how you would do these steps to the Charleston. And that is in front of a mirror so that you can watch yourself do the Charleston or try to do the Charleston. Then you go into a little door. And that, that part about the Charleston is very important, by the way. You go into this other door and then you go into a bar, which is part of the museum where they make you some old school drinks. And you have everybody that's gone through the museum sitting there. And what they get to do as entertainment is watch other people perform in the two-way mirror in front of the, you know, where they were learning how to do the Charleston. And you see oh, these so people everybody's like, watching you? everybody's watching you. Oh, too. Everybody's watching you try to do the Charleston in this two way mirror as they're having their 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 drinks in the bar. And as those people come in, it's like, hey, you know, <laughs> I remember that. Hey. guy. That's the guy you know, with two left feet. No, no, but it's like right after. So you just try to do that. And then, you know, there's always one person in every group that sits there and tries to do it. And I'm very thankful that in the little section of Pete, it was me, it was Lori, it was these other people. And I would have, you know, I would have tried to do it. And, but the, there was this one woman in our group and she was like, just standing there doing the thing. And she kept messing up and she was like making these faces. And I can only imagine you know, what was going on inside. But then when we ended up walking into it, there were, you know, she walks in and everybody's like, eh. <laughs> it was, very, it was very funny how they had that set up, but it's cool to have the bar in there as the end place to be able to go and see Cause it's kind of like a speakeasy. You go in through a door. So it's like a speakeasy in the museum. And then you get to have a cocktail at the end. You can sit down, you can talk about it, but then also they have other things in the bar that you would see at these others. It was very cool. Very cool. I highly recommend. Very nice. So there you have it. As Travis mentioned earlier, women brought about prohibition and they also brought about its end. One of my favorite quotes on prohibition comes from the former president of Mexico, Vincente Fox. And he wasn't talking about prohibition of alcohol in the United States in 1920s. Rather, he was trying to push the legalization of cannabis and of prohibition. He said prohibition didn't work in the Garden of Eden. Adam ate the apple. So very interesting stuff. Very cool. So here's a toast to our 50th episode. May you live forever. And may I never die. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. That's for you, Uncle Knapp. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.